Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I wanted to uh, let people know that uh, in a few weeks, uh, for those of you who uh, frequent or live in Los Angeles, I'll be uh, participating in a workshop called Visionary Praxis, Dreams, Psychedelics, and Yoga. And uh, it's being sponsored by Ardor and going to be taking place at the Los Angeles Yoga Club, which is in downtown uh, L.A., so you can uh, find out more about that on my website, technosis.com. I'll be uh, posting that today um, and also uh, just find it through the Los Angeles Yoga Club. And we'll be looking at uh, different kinds of practice and how they impact um, and relate with visionary experience, not just psychedelic experience, but also uh, the various altered states and mind states opened up through dream work yoga, and just living in our mad society. Uh, Speaking of our mad society, uh, um, I've been noticing something a little disturbing of late. Um, Not that disturbing things are particularly unusual these days, Um, but it has to do with my my own kind of character, my own intellectual temperament, which is one uh, that sees a lot of points of view. You know, I'm a child of Robert Anton Wilson. I'm interested in the uh, multiple model, uh, you know, multiplicity of reality tunnels. I have a very pluralistic point of view. And over the years, I I think I've gotten pretty good at being able to not just listen and even understand where other people are coming from, but kind of grok their worldview, like sort of tune. In fact, even the, the more alien, sometimes the more interesting. It's one of the reasons I'm interested in religion is because some people just have some really far out ideas and they're coming from very strange places, but they're, it fascinates me. I want to know, I want to feel like I can, I can have some sense of where they're coming from. And it's, it's, you know, made for an interesting journalistic career and an interesting intellectual career. Uh, but recently I've, I've, I've come to question, uh, the uh, sort of why uh, wisdom of this perspective or uh, this capacity in our current environment, um, where it almost seems like uh, one's ability to understand whether people coming from are coming from is uh, becomes a, a very challenging thing to to pull off in the first place, but also can get you a lot of guff. Um, and there, there's sort of a narrowing and a kind of uh, intensified tribalization. And I don't mean that just that people want you to just speak from their perspective. And if you like, you know, if you start to think about why people might be attracted to, say, nationalist ideas, you know, people, oh, how, you know, you, you, how could you give t- airtime to those terrible ideas? You know, that's part of it. But it's, it, it's also just that in asking certain kinds of questions, in coming up with certain kinds of critiques, let's say, even if those are legitimate in their own terms for you, or for me, I should say, it's it's clear the way that they begin to resonate with much larger worldviews. So there's a sense that, that one has to step much more carefully, uh, especially if, if you're taking on um, these the kind of different perspectives that are now going on in our, our heightened uh, pluralistic culture wars, where it's not just left and right, it's all sorts of variations and mixtures 
in between. And it, it feels like the space of public discourse, whether we think about it narrowly in terms of Twitter or just, uh, you know, the essays one reads in, in newspapers or online or magazines, or even the conversations we have with one another, that, that all of that is becoming sort of... Um, invaded uh, by various sort of schemas and discourses and ways of organizing questions. It's like people are not really listening to each other so much as trying to reframe each other so that once they're inside of a, 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 the frame, they're more easy to, to manage or to dis- disagree with or to denigrate. And that uh, thinking, speaking, language you use, all of it is much more um, tense and uh, full of tripwires and and traps and and minds that are that are tucked away, ready to uh, uh, blow up in your face. So even if you're asking a question. Uh, a, a relatively innocent or very specific question uh, about some perspective among whatever new atheists or uh, Black Lives Matter or uh, some centrist perspective that's trying to understand the white middle working class or whatever, and you have some specific issues with that, sometimes those very issues enter into a kind of uh, mimetic resonance with uh, forces and perspectives that you're not interested in supporting, that you're not interested in uh, fueling the flames of. So we're really in a, a new kind of territory where discourse itself has, has, has been weaponized and invaded and cybernetically reorganized, where the, the rules of discourse are kind of used against the spirit and principle of discourse. We see this a lot with certain kinds of the, the way that the alt-right has weaponized ideas about free speech and simultaneously the way that people, uh, some, some groups on the left, uh, are become increasingly critical of, of free speech. Both of those developments I find uh, unnerving in all sorts of ways. But in, in the midst of these questions I've been asking, I stumbled across recently a, a really wonderful piece called Mimetic Tribes and Culture War 2.0 by Peter Lindbergh and Connor Barnes. It's on, uh, it's on Medium. And what they try to do is try to kind of map out this new dynamic and how mimetic tribes operate in this, in this environment. And they, they do a wonderful job also of just breaking down these tribes from the left, from the right, from the centrist, from the, the atheist to the religion especially those tribes that are really involved with arguing with each other, with fighting, with the sense that there's a fight on, a fight of ideas, a fight of power, and we need to, uh, you know, keep keep waging the, the good war. And uh, both the, the mapping of the specific groups and the general discussion uh, about mimetic tribes and how to kind of stay on your feet amidst the new rules and the new traps, the new tripwires, the new uh, the, the, the tribes. Uh, tricks. Uh, I think it's a it's a wonderful place to start. So I just uh, uh, decided to get Peter on the show. So Peter, welcome to uh, Expanding Mind. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I want to get to the piece in uh, in just a second, but before that, I wanted to get a little bit more of a sense of where you're coming from and what you've been up to. Uh, you sent me to the Intellectual Explorers Club, which is something that you've set up in. Uh, Toronto. It seems very intriguing, uh, a kind of combination of a, of a sort of philosophy club along with a kind of commitment to understanding the uh, situation 
that we're in, where uh, the very act of thinking itself is uh, is kind of been weaponized, and we need to find sort of maybe more agile ways of continuing to engage philosophical questions in this new environment. Yeah. So I created it about a, a year ago, and it was really just an excuse for for giving giving myself an opportunity to read a deep book and talk about it out loud with people. And then it sort of morphed into something else because um, I realized the importance of understanding other people's perspectives and viewing different perspectives as sort of a language you can speak. Because when I facilitated these meetings and we meet, you know, weekly, talk about books, have lectures, um, do interesting events like philosophical speed dating. But what I noticed when you have these events, it's as, as a facilitator, it felt kind of schizophrenic. Because we talk about a subject, whatever it is, God or truth. And then you just get, as the facilitator, I'm just getting attacked by multiple perspectives. And people are just talking over each other. They're not listening. They're not understanding somebody else's perspective. Um, So it was sort of disorientating for me. But it also gave me the opportunity um, to practice uh, the principle of charity and intellectual humility to be able to hold somebody's perspective and articulate it back to them to the point where they felt understood. Um, So the the mission of the Intellectual Explorers Club is to explore thought, which challenges and expands our map of reality. And uh, and engaging in these meetups inspired me to write this article on, on the culture war. Yeah, no, I met, that makes sense. <clears throat> and it also uh, seemed to spur some really interesting research because you had to go out and, you know, discover some of these niche perspectives. I mean, I know that I found, um, you know, some new characters in going through your list or that you identified positions that I hadn't quite seen as specific uh, position. So it, it all led to a to very positive effect. But let's just let's stay a little bit with that. Um, those qualities that are required to hold, at least for a moment, uh, someone's pers- uh, somebody else's perspective, even if you kind of know that at the end of the day you're going to be opposed to it, or you may even be very clear about some specific reasons you are opposed to it. And yet it still seems, and this is where you know, there's, uh, you can have a debate, and maybe I'll, I'll bring up some of these questions in a little bit. I want to acknowledge it's not an unproblematic stance, but to my mind, and I suspect to yours as well, regardless of where you end up standing on any particular topic, you have to go through a period where you can at least, to use a New Age a metaphor resonate with where somebody else is coming from as you were developing that facility in the context of the intellectual explorers club and thinking about what does it mean to be able to do that you you mentioned some values some philosophical values some um character values talk a little bit about that about about how values or philosophical perspectives can help one be able to risk uh, grokking where someone else is coming from, even if there's something about it that you really distrust or are opposed to. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll say this uh, before I answer that when you spoke in the beginning, how, you know, you like to geek out on different ideas and take a meta perspective, but it seems increasingly dangerous to do so. That um, is exactly what I like to do originally when I was in my philosophy student days. Um, 
and I felt a longing for, but it also felt dangerous as well. So I, I'm totally on board with uh, with that statement. And I think something this is term uh, that I like to uh, work with uh, called the philosophical sandbox, right? And I board it from sort of uh, software engineering where they have a production environment and then they have a, a testing environment. And so before they upload, you know, a new program or software, or they want to test code, uh, they want to test it in a safe environment so it doesn't disrupt, you know, the regular operating system. So they test it in a sandbox environment. And if everything works well, then you, you know, then you put it in the production environment. And I think we need a, a philosophical sandbox so we can test ideas and look at ideas on their own terms, uh, see their truth value or see their, their morality. And I think in order to do that, you have to be maximally agnostic. You have to be able to go in this maximally agnostic state. Um, and again, it's like uh, the way I look. I like to look at it is like being a method actor with reality tunnels. Um, so it's like an actor takes on a role, but he doesn't lose himself in that role. You can take on a viewpoint, a perspective, a philosophy, but not lose yourself in that, that perspective. And so one of the, the practical techniques, the conversational modalities that we're working on uh, is called the anti-debate. And I mentioned this to you uh, via email, and it simply it goes like this. Uh, let's say we have opposing positions uh, on God or whatever. I state my position, and before you give your disagreement, you state my position back to me until I feel fully understood. And then once I feel fully understood, then you give my disagreement. Then I repeat your disagreement back until you feel fully understood. And then we go uh, back and forth. So it's you know position, understanding, uh, disagreement, understanding, disagreement, understanding. And that kind of builds that capacity to, to, to play in a philosophical sandbox. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love that phrase, method actor of reality tunnels. I mean, I'm definitely a child of uh, Robert Anton Wilson. And I, you know, often, since I, I, I wrote on him recently for my, my forthcoming book, I, I was wrestling with, with um, the idea of reality tunnels, the kind of multiplicity of views, the, the temptations of conspiracy theory and occult ideas, which are which in his world are also bound up with very you know kind of rational libertarian skeptical positions, and it's a it's a fascinating mishmash that has become only more resonant and not necessarily you know all to the good. Like there's some aspects there that I'm I really sometimes find myself questioning again because the rules have 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 changed in some ways. Um, nonetheless, I think that's a you know it's an extremely important. Uh, facility, and I, I would want to add one one kind of dimension to it, is that a lot of people's arguments, particularly these what you call these mimetic tribes, where they have, and you, and, and you talk about this in the article in terms of a telos, that there's kind of an ultimate value that is being driven towards. And until you until if you don't recognize what that value is, whether or not you actually consider it a value or not, but if you don't actually recognize how that axiomatic value is established, you often just can't reproduce the other perspective. And so, part of being a method actor of reality t- tunnels is, you know, almost to you know use some more kind of technical language is that you have to recognize what the axiomatic is in another perspective and then be willing to run it on your own sandbox 
you know, virtual reality simulator to go, oh, okay, if that was my core value. And the, the, the example I use here, and I think it's a pertinent one, I'd be interested in hearing how you think about this, this specific example as well, but the example that's been very clear to me is uh, comes from Jordan Peterson, a figure I've been very interested in watching because, to my mind, he sort of started out somewhere more where you and I are coming from, where he, he was kind of not really completely uh, uh, establishing himself as a culture warrior, and yet he became kind of more radicalized or uh, more of a, of a leader along the way, and I think actually kind of blew it in a lot of ways and he got himself into sticky traps he got some nasty uh, fellow travelers and he ended up actually intensifying things that um were were better left held in kind of a, a suspension but that's another conversation the point i want to make about about peterson is that he you know he has this this bugaboo for the postmodern marxists and one of his arguments that he'll make over and over and over and over again is that the postmodern Marxists, whatever, you know, uh, social justice, uh, in institutions, uh, feminists, or whatever, um, in the university, that they have no values. They have no values. That's what he'll say. It's all about power. So he misrecognizes the focus on power from, let's call it, let's just use his language, which I don't think is appropriate, you know, the, the Marxist, postmodern Marxists. But as you note that in your in your thing that this that social justice activism is motivated by a profound value, and that value is you could call it emancipation, liberation. And if you recognize that that is the value, even if you find the excesses of social justice activism uh you know, worthy of critique, worthy of pushback, whatever. But it totally changes the view to look at them from having no values except the quest for power versus having an ultimate value or telos, which I would characterize as emancipation, which you can trace back to the 60s, to to civil war movement, to gay rights, women rights. It's about freeing something from some source of oppression and while that model is complicated and problematic in certain cir- circumstances, no question, um, it is a real value. And once you see that as a real value, there's more sympathy for even the excesses of the of a perspective from 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 a social justice side. I understand where they're coming from, even if I don't like any per- a particular manifestation of it. So to me, that's a really clear example of how important it is to recognize the values which go which are motivating. I don't want to say all of your mimetic tribes because there's some chaos tricksters out there that you know i don't know exactly how you think square that with a value language but for the most part it's really key to res to to be able to recognize those values yeah and like i'm going to put myself at the edge of my thinking here i think um these mimetic tribes that we listed and we have a you know a spreadsheet we have a taxonomy of their sacred values there's telos that's sort of um what they're cognizantly aware of, you know, what they stand for. But I think you can make an argument that maybe each mimetic tribe has a shadow quality too. 
right? So they have like a conscious telos, like the ones we listed, and maybe there's an unconscious telos that's, that's motivating them or, or secretly driving them. And I think when, when Peterson, to be most charitable, uh, when he's looking at sort of um, uh, like woke tribes, if you want to call them that, he's looking at what he thinks is their shadow, and he's not speaking the language that they themselves speak. Um, and then that creates complication, and, and there's, there's a lack of dialogue there. Yeah, that's I like that idea of the shadow, and I could I can see that immediately with with many of the of the tribes, the ones that I know better. Um, and that's of course partly the tr- the tricky part is that in in a real dialogue, like you and I are having a disagreement about something, but I already have a sense of where you're coming from. I sense you're a you're, you're you know a, re, a, a a value actor that you're a reflective person that you don't have a particular insidious agenda even if we might disagree about things that there's a space possible for each of us to to recognize the shadow spot or you could even say the or the shadow side or the blind spot but in order to be able to communicate that you still have to go through something like this anti-debate process where you're able to model authentically where the other person is coming from and for example if we just stay with i don't want to just pick on social justice activists but it's very visible and it's you know a, a way to think about this is one of the shadow points that i would would recognize is resentment the politics of resentment, when you let the affect, the the emotion, the energy, the emotional energy of resentment and rage drive your position, I think there's consequences to that. And I think part of what that the excesses have to do with not taking responsibility for the for the consequences of that. Now, some people say, oh, it's justified because of oppression, because of the situation. You know, in some sense, anger is always justified and also never justified. It's a it's a tricky it's a tricky situation. But to in order to get to a position where you're actually able to have that conversation, so much trust has to be established. You know, so much for and it's you know, all of the conditions that we're facing, particularly online, and not just online, are are undermining uh, that kind of trust. How how do you see how, how you know? And at the end of your article, you talk about ways that that people can learn to to become better interlocutors in this weaponized culture war. What are the things you've mentioned? The anti debate, but what are some other ways that people can develop either the capacities in themselves or the dialogue? Um, processes that can help facilitate something less um, clamoring than what we have now? Hmm. You know, that's a really good question. And it's it's not one that I have a, a ready answer for because, you know, I go through my pessimistic moments and um, and think that, okay, we, we headed for some real real nastiness and chaos in this culture war. Because some people do not seem to have the willingness or the capacity to be, you know, put themselves in that philosophical sandbox. Um, so I guess my project here at the Intellectual Explorers Club is sort of making uncertainty sexy. Um, and when I was talking to my co-authors about uh, the speculative proposals that we mentioned, we had like about seven or eight. Um, we were saying, what's, what's the common theme here? The common theme here is sort of uh, injecting uncertainty in people. 
Um, because I think one of the, the things in common with a lot of these tribes, maybe not all of them, is sort of this pathological certainty. Mm-hmm. And maybe the, um, you know, the shadow behind that is this, this anxiety that's, that's occurring. You know, we're, this, we're living in this accelerated age. We we're all kind of uh, have future shock. And maybe in order to mitigate that, we, we want to run into a narrative that gives us this certainty. Um, and so I guess one of the, the projects I'm working on is to make it okay to be certain and be confident with your uncertainty and, and bring this together. You know, we're uncertain together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I often think that one of the great paradoxes of our time is that any thinking person, and I don't mean, you know, an intellectual, a, a, a philosopher of the meta, I just mean anybody who's paying attention, I you know, to my mind anyway, <clears throat> how could you not come to the conclusion that nobody knows what the hell is going on? That it's, there's so many random factors. There's so much intensification. There's so much disruption. There's so many new factors introduced by technology alone, let, it, let alone climate change and changes in world governance and all, you know, all the things we could talk about. It's so clear that we're, we're in a turbulent, uh, increasingly turbulent environment. I, I like that model of turbulence because it's, it's like chaos, but not quite as intense. And it, it manages to refer to what happens to systems when they've been disrupted, but not completely destroyed. Well, they become turbulent. And that's true for the climate. That's true for international order. That's true for civility. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we're just entering a more and more turbulent situation, which means a more and more uncertain situation. You even want to just think about it as like scientists, where there's more Brownian motion in the social sphere. Therefore, you cannot predict the location and velocity of any particular particle particularly well compared to maybe 100 years ago. I don't know. But at the same time, and this is the paradox, when we look around us, everybody, almost everybody seems more certain. I, I, and I, I, I mean, like, I just remain flabbergasted in that because I'm, I'm not certain. I recognize how certainty is functioning as a, both a weapon and as a, a source of solace, a source of ballast. Um, and I think it even helps explain some of the uh, strongman, let's say, rather than say fascist, some of the strongman dimension of world politics is because... You know, a lot of the people who are rallying behind a, 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 a powerful leader at a core level, they don't know. They know that they don't know. I know. I don't know. But that guy, that guy seems to know. So it's yeah. it's safer to go and, and, and get in his, and of course it is his, uh, you know, re- reality tunnel because then I have a sense of solidity, a sense of belonging, a sense of knowing that I've, in a way, purchased by profaning my own philosophical sense of being uncertain or or recognizing how turbulent the situation is. And this paradox, just I don't know how to get around it. Is it because, you know, are all those people that certain? Or is uncertainty itself so such a so weakening in this new environment that, like, people recognize that they're afraid of it? I mean, I it, it's... You know, is there are there different kinds of uncertainty? Maybe that's the question you, you've yeah, been working yeah. on. Different kinds of uncertainty. There's sort of a I don't know. Oh my God, so crazy! I'm just going to stick with what I know. And then there's a kind of braver uncertainty 
that may be more rigorous or more methodological that allows you to enter into the turbulence, the multiplicity of reality tunnels, not to lose your way, not to become simply a resonating extension of a memeplex, but also to be able to map and sense your way into this larger world. And if that's the case, how would you say, just in your own life, your own mind, your own thoughts, your own sources, what helps create that more rigorous and courageous uncertainty? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. And a couple things come to mind. Um, I think uh, a lot of people are incentivized to be certain, especially intellectual people or people who produce intellectual content because they're, whether they're books or their PhD or their research, it's, it's, it's just, there's a direct link to their livelihood. Um, and so there's incentive there to be certain. I also think there's sort of like a biological resonance with uh, certainty or confidence. You know, people, we just are attracted to people who are confident on a very like um, visceral gut biological level. And, you know, I've taken a lot of uh, acting courses and, and improv courses here, and it really allows you to play with that, that certainty and confidence. And you see, you see, you see a bunch of actors that they're, they're like so confident on the screen, but when they're in the interviews, uh, you know, the talk show hosts, they're like nervous or they're, they're anxious people, but they know how to turn that certainty on. Right. So it's, it's, it's a muscle that can be played with and, and worked with. Um, so how do I um, manage to be, have this sort of uh, existential certainty combined with uh, intellectual uncertainty? And I don't know if I do have that number one. And if I did stumble on something that's close to it, I think, um, you know, my, my sort of working operating system of, of stoicism uh, helped a lot because their axiomatic principle is just radically focus on what you have control of and don't worry, or not necessarily don't worry, but don't try to control things that you don't have control of. Yeah. Uh, so that, that I, I believe helps ground me and it allows me to, you know, engage in this philosophical sandbox exercise. Yeah. Now, for, for me, I think this is also where, you know, two things I talk a lot about on the show come come to to the fore, which is uh, meditation and um, a right. uh, let's say a, a philosophically engaged form of, of psychedelic use, because in both situations, in different ways, you be you you the the, the perceiver, the subject, the consciousness, the awareness, uh, <clears throat> increasingly. Uh, uh, operates in an environment where the content of thought is either no longer identified with, in the case of meditation, or in the case of psychedelics, is bizarre and confusing. Um, And so you become to be more intimate with what it is to be awake and aware in the midst of a highly either... uh, an empty environment where no position or thought or particular identification seems to hold much sway or where everything is on the table where, you know, multidimensional, the gods, the paranoid conspiracy theories, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Some weird en- enchanted world that you can't entirely believe with believe in. And yet you, there you are sort of finding your way through it. Uh, and so in my life, both of these things are practices of uncertainty. And I, I, I really like that 
that I'm going to I'm going to keep mulling on this combination of existential confidence and intellectual uncertainty. That, that seems to me part of the key here. Um, well, since you brought up stoicism, I still want to. We haven't got to the article quite yet, but, I, but since you brought it up and it was something I wanted to talk about, you know, there is uh, something else we've talked on the show uh, a few times, number of times, and um, how? Wh- what are the 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 aspects of you know as you encountered Stoic thought in you know it's 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 ancient articulation and now there's more of a contemporary. I would even say movement, you know, people who are identifying with it and, and attempting to really engage the principles in daily life. What what are the things that, that are most valuable from a Stoic point of view? And you've already mentioned, you know, at least one of them in terms of having control over what you can have control over. But what are the ones that really come up for you as you are navigating the particular environment we're talking about, the, the culture wars, getting a handle on what's happening in terms of political perspectives, how people are thinking, how philosophy can help in this particular situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What I like about Stoicism is that it kind of localizes you in the moment, at least conceptually, where like uh, the Buddhistic practices, meditation, they do that in sort of like on a phenomenological level, where Stoicism kind of like just brings you back to the ground, you know, it brings you back to first principles. And and again, the, the, the main uh, sort of axiomatic principles that the economy of control focus on what you have control of. Uh, don't try to focus. Uh, don't try to control what you don't have um, control of. And, um, and that sort of cultivates. If you do that and you apply the different areas of your life, it kind of cultivates an anti-fragility, uh, a psychological anti-fragility, I believe. Um, and there's, a, there's a, they have some other practices like, uh, you know, voluntary hardship where you take cold showers or you, you know, um, sleep on the floor, stuff like that. And I, and I try to practice that. I, I, I try to like, well, I think one exercise is really cool is planking, you know, like getting into the plank mode because you can always go another second. And it just really trains your, your mental toughness. And the idea is to get um, comfortable with not being comfortable. Yeah. Comfortable with not being comfortable. It's so interesting you said that because I've, I mean, so I got a whole bunch of ideas on this topic of, of stoicism, but I, I wanted to ask one thing that I've been thinking about recently. I also agree that a lot of aspects of stoicism, I think, are very helpful, at least for some people in this environment, um, in terms of giving you a sense of ballast, to giving you a sense of being comfortable with discomfort, uh, enabling you to be in uncertainty and not just fall back to established positions. But one thing that's interesting about the term is taking it out of its specifically philosophical context, stoic, stoic attitude. It's often associated with what, um, with traditional male roles, so, like, I just read an article about how they, a bunch of sociologists went and studied young people in a number of different countries, and they discovered that uh, girls, while they were still having, you know, suffering from certain kinds of oppression and being sexual objects and not knowing how to navigate around that, in a lot of other ways, they were really flowering. There were many different perspectives and attitudes they they had they had they felt encouraged to be smarter to be more leaders to you know explore different aspects of themselves but they found that, that male roles were really pretty much kind of stuck with the with the traditional modes of 
not very emotional, uh, you know, being competent in control and being stoic. And it's interesting because a lot of people say, oh, well, we have to, you know, change guys and open it up. And uh, this is this is the these this is the roots of toxic masculinity and and detachment from feeling and blah, 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 blah. But sometimes I feel like the solution, I don't know if solution is the right word, but the way through this is actually already on the field. And that stoicism, the stoicism that is associated with the traditional male role while it can become part of toxic masculinity, while it can become part of a certain shutting down which enables violence or enables detachment or lets people drift into, you know, not very healthy places, that properly encouraged and nurtured, that stoicism already contains the seeds of something that will help ameliorate a lot of those problems. Mm. And so part of the reason I'm interested in contemporary stoicism is something about that. And I don't know if that's too much to ask of you, but just, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know how old you are exactly, but you're, you know, considerably younger than I. Growing up in this environment, growing up, you know, white guy in the situation where it's more and more challenging to be a white guy whatever that means maybe it doesn't mean anything but you're still there you are um how stoicism helped you navigate that particular situation if if it did yeah yeah like um i think stoicism it's like it helps you cloister yourself from the world mentally you know there's like you put uh barriers around your mind in a way and like one visual you can say about the the culture war is that all these mimetic tribes are like throwing memes at your, at your mind. They're trying to enter your mind with these memes. Right. And then stoicism has a way to block that off. And, um, and then if you have a a sandbox associated with that, uh, then you can look at those memes on its own terms and decide if you want them to enter in your, your internal castle, uh, or not. Um, and it, it helps you do that mentally and emotionally, I find. Right. So it's, it, it protects you from all these kind of external uh, memes and, and, and felt senses that are trying to get in and influence you. So by engaging in these, these practices and these thought experiments that I've been doing for, you know, I, dis- I discovered stoicism about 10 years ago when I was in university, um, not in university, oddly enough, but, you know, a friend uh, bought me a book and then I read it and I'm like, this is it. Right. This is this is what I needed, and since then I've been practicing their 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 ideas and then playing with some of the techniques, and it afforded me, I believe, this this kind of protection. Great, very well said. So here here's the then the next question. Now, if you read people's writing about stoicism, and you know sympathetically, let's say, you know, I just read an article the other day. There's a new uh, uh, translation by by Long on uh, how to be free. From, I don't know how to pronounce his name. You probably know it. Ep- Epictetus. Epictetus. That's here we go. Thank you, Epictetus. And I was I read a review, and it was like mostly pretty sympathetic. And then it got down, but but the problem is that at some point we do may, need to make like a radical affect, emotionally driven com- commitment to X or Y. Like the the line that they were riffing on was he talks. It is pretty harsh. Well, it's like yeah, you know. 
look, you're just your wife, your child. It's temporary, man. If they if they die, don't grieve. It's just part of the picture. You know, just, you know, super radical. Not unlike a lot of Buddhism. I mean, there's a lot of overlap for sure. Um, so if you're a Buddhist, you've read these kinds of ideas before. But when you come to thinking of them in your actual life, you know, people, a lot of people respond, no, you're, you're supposed to grab a hold of that person and completely affirm them in the face of the, the inevitable. Um, and it has a political dimension, too. And this is really the question I have for you is as you navigate these tribes and you, you know, you make it clear that you have you have your own perspective and angle that you're kind of not exactly being completely explicit about, but you talk about maintaining a certain autonomy in this sort of seas of, of, of brainwash, of mimetic warfare, of, of manipulation of desire and cognitive, all the things that are happening to us as we're embedded inside all of these technological systems, et cetera, et cetera, that you maintain a certain, you know, stoicism helps maintain a certain autonomy, but at some point, is there a danger in that sense of detachment or that sense of um, being, you know, freed from these claims. And, and I've had friends who ask me that, too, because that tends to be the way I go. I tend to have this overview. I tend to try to look at it as a system. And some, sometimes they're like, no, man, sometimes you got to, like, take a stand and stop doing this and da 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 whatever. And, you know, they're interesting conversations. How, how do you deal with that do you believe that do you think that there's a there's a way in which that stoic attitude can go too far can allow a detachment particularly particularly if you are privileged enough in your life to be able to quote unquote afford detachment um uh or do you think it actually just enables you to be more clear about those things that you ultimately affirm and commit to and even struggle for Mm -hmm. i think it's a tool that definitely can be misused um, and I view stoicism sort of as a, as a muscle that you build and, or as an app that you can use. But if you just work on that, if you just work on your bicep <laughs> and not work on any other part of your body, for example, then it's going to be, you know, deranged and it's not going to be healthy and it's not going to look good. Um, so I think there's sort of moderation that you need in order to, uh, uh, work out your stoic muscle. And I think it's, it's most beneficial of what I just mentioned. But if you use it to the point where you just kind of blunt yourself from the, the realities that we're facing, and collectively there's a lot of existential risks that we're facing, um, and I think it is a, a good thing. And this is something I'm working out too, so it's not my, my thoughts are not totally uh, uh, formulated here, but I think it's a good thing to feel this urgency. Um, I remember I was uh, a couple of days ago, there's this author that I used to read when I was really young. His name is Derek Jensen. He's a kind of an anarcho primitivist. He's an environmentalist guy, anti-civilization. And the guy was kind of a flirting with anarchist thought when I was younger. And I haven't, I haven't, you know, read him for years and I stumbled at some of his videos. And then it struck me how, like how I felt the moment was so urgent all of a sudden, just by listening to him, even though I don't, might not have agreed with him, but I felt his energy and um, it sort of shook me up a little bit. Because if you get too attached in this meta perspective and then you're just exercising your stoic muscle too much, then um, you, you get blinded to what the world needs from you. Yeah, I think that's really, uh, really well put. And that's that's sort of the conclusion that I've that I've come to. Um, and it, it's it's another example of what I think 
what's good about being a pluralist thinker, which is another way of saying, you know, being able to move into different reality tunnels, is that you don't believe that any one view or practice is going to solve the big picture. Whereas it feels like a lot of people still kind of believe that or hope that's the case. Or, you know, the way, like, say, this article I read was written was like, stoicism, good or bad, blah, 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 blah. This is some good stuff. But look, the guy's saying that he doesn't care if his daughter died. That's disgusting. Stoicism, probably not enough. Whereas what you're saying, it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a tool, it's a space, it's a reality tunnel, it's a practice, and it's not the whole picture. And not, you know, nothing is really the, the whole picture. And I see people who could use a lot of stoicism, and people I know, people who could really use the kind of language of independence, of autonomy, of assent, of detachment, all of these values, which a lot of people complain about because, they, again, they associate it with to- either toxic masculinity or Western values or whatever you want to say. But there's a lot of people who could use some of that. Not 100%, not all the time, but there's a kind of resistance to it because it's also associated with these other things. And that's the problem is that there are elements of a lot of these perspectives. There's, there's truths claimed by many of your, of your mimetic groups that are very valuable, but the whole package, you don't want the whole package. So it's a, it's a very interesting reflection of, of where we are. And I realize that we still haven't really gotten the article. We only have about 10 minutes left. So I, what I wanted you to do is to define, you at the beginning, you, you talk about the contemporary mimetic tribes and you contrast them with earlier which you call digital tribes. I think that's a really good key into the new zone that we're in with with memes and arguments, uh, particularly online. So what what is that distinction? Yeah, so um, we defined uh, memetic tribes as a a group of agents with a memeplex that directly or indirectly seeks to impose its distinct map of reality along with its moral imperatives uh, upon other minds. So... I like to look at each tribe having their own map of reality and directions on how to use that map. You know, the, the breakdown of the is and the ought, the descriptive and the normative. So they each have their own version of that. Um, and digital tribes are sort of like, they have a memeplex too. Uh, they have like a, a set of memes, a constellation of memes, but they're not really trying to change culture. Right? And that's the difference between uh, what we view as a memetic tribe and a digital tribe. And then we view uh, this, this new culture war as not just a, a left and right, like a left and right tribes, but like a slew of these um, different memetic tribes battling each other, trying to control the narrative or impose their narrative on other people's minds. One of the interesting things about the me, and I think that's true. I think it 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 acknowledges that we're in these sort of. Again, I think of the metaphor of resonance, which is often a positive thing. Oh, I can resonate with where you're coming from, but it's it, there's a dark side of resonance too, which is that, and I, I've noticed this. Like you can take an argument where, let's say, you start to critique whatever, uh, you know, you start to critique uh, religionists, you know, on a certain for certain aspects of their faith or how the faith blinds them to certain things. And then before you know it, you, you're kind of resonating with these kind of radical militant atheists, which I have a lot of problems with. And I'm like, Oh wait, that's not, that's not, I didn't want to go that way. Like I didn't want it. So it's, it, that's what I mean where the whole field is kind of mined with, 
with with, with traps and, and trip wires and and these sort of resonance capturers and once you and you so you have to be really careful but because even if the specific argument you're making is valid you're kind of <clears throat> brought into these like larger zones. One one line I really uh, struck me from the from the piece I'd like you to elaborate on is you talk about well, what's the ideal host for one of these meme plexes. Like if you're if you're in a particular mimetic tribe and you are doing the work of the meme by propagating it you know, intensely and by, you know, finding the, the enemy and, and trying to overcome them, if you're in that kind of model, what's the best host? What's the best kind of human being, if you will, or, or subject position to, to be a host? And you talk about a paranoid ideologue. <laughs> and in a way, we're selecting for paranoid ideologues, aren't we? Or the environment that we're in. Mm. And... Um you know, we, we said that a host is not just a, a human's mind, but it could be like a bot, it could be an institution, anything that can carry and transmit a meme could potentially be a host. Um, and, and regarding to your comment, we, we had uh, six crises uh, that created the mimetic tribes. And the last two was the, what we call the sobriety crisis and the warfare crisis. And the sobriety crisis is, is essentially, you know, how social media made us pretty much uh, mimetic addicts, you know, and weakened our agency. And then the warfare crisis is, is sort of foreign agents and sort of certain actors capitalizing on this and weaponizing our minds to meet their own ends. Um, so, yeah, we're in this weird situation right now where we're becoming that. Yeah, and and the the issue of paranoia comes come or or consp- you know, and it's sort of related to con- conspiracy theory comes comes to mind because uh, uh, it, it, it's another way of organizing reality around a fixed story. You know, the paranoid knows, the paranoid always knows. And it's also a wonderful way to not um, try to understand where the other people are coming from. It's, it's a great way to, because you can say, oh, that whole argument you have, you're not actually that, you're really just this. Or so if you... You know, if you're like, for example, I got really interested in the people who became uh, suspicious about the the mainstream media, to use their phrase, uh, mainstream media's obsession with 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 Russia Gate and with the Russian trolls, you know, changing the election, and and we're, we're becoming skeptical about some of that language. You know, and so I was kind of interested in reading what their perspectives were, and there were some things that seemed really illuminating. Glenn, Glenn Greenwald being a, one of the more famous people who was throwing up these kinds of suspicions. But what was amazing was watching the response, which was so quick to see them as part of the conspiracy. They were just themselves uh, the mouthpieces of Russian trolls or whatever. So once you are, once you allow that kind of conspiracy thinking into your head, you can write off any enemy you want. It's easy. You just yeah. you, you have your story. It's already prepared, and people do that left and right, literally or you know politically, uh, in in the information um, environment. So uh, it it does seem like it's kind of you know we're creating this environment where there's just more and more reason to be paranoid, and in, in the in in, ma- in many reasons for for many reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you posted this, uh, you tweeted this article on the targeted individuals, how they're like the canaries in the coal mine. Uh, yeah. And when I originally uh, discovered those a couple of years ago, I really brought home what the mine can do and how there's like uh, 
epistemic closure can be involved and you, you meet other people that are also epistemically closed and you find people and then you kind of uh, close off anybody who can actually challenge that, you know. Yeah, it's very, very easy uh, to 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 get into that get into that space. So I think you know, we just got a f- you know a few minutes uh, left here. Um, I, I'd like to hear a little more more about some of the solutions that you guys offer. Not maybe not solutions is too strong a word, but some mm-hmm. of you know if people who are not so captivated by their particular meanplex are able to recognize that even if they even as they go forward and want to argue for what they're arguing for that the situation is becoming so toxic that that toxicity begins to impact them and they end up you know reproducing it as well what what are some of the ways that you feel like is the best for people who are engaging in let's say online debate which is the most obvious example but you know other kinds of debating you've mentioned the anti debate that sort of formal process whereby people uh, do a good enough job of of recognizing where the other person's coming from that everybody feels like they've at least been understood to a certain degree. What are some other practices, whether they're drawn from Stoicism or from from other sources or things you've come up with? What are things that that people can do as they go into these environments to try to not get as easily caught up or as easily overwhelmed or as easily triggered or angry or paranoid um, as they go into these very intense uh, environments. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can mention the two uh, uh, speculative proposals that we we mentioned. We mentioned we had at the end of the paper, we wanted to end on an optimistic kind of existentially hopeful note. So we had about uh, eight or seven speculative proposals. And the first two was the Hippocratic Oath of uh, the Culture War, and the other one was Dirty Bias to Clean Bias. So the Hippocratic Oath, um, it's like a, it's an oath that physicians uh, took when they graduated medical school and, and basically saying they're not going to do harm and they have people's best interests in mind or the patient's best interests in mind. And so we suggested that meme creators, whether they're journalists, bloggers, television hosts, should commit to some sort of oath that may be a good percentage of the tribes agree to. Uh, it could be, you know, the principle of charity. You're going to steel man somebody's position. You know, you're not going to um, unnecessarily interrupt all the time. Uh, so it, it have intellectual humility, engage in good faith dialogue. So have some kind of oath that's uh, formulated that they can kind of commit to. And so if they break that oath, you can kind of point it to them. And I think there's a ritualistic magic to that. Um, and we didn't kind of outline what that oath could be. We just gave some suggestions and then hope some entrepreneurial spirits could go from there. Uh, and then the other one we had mentioned is a uh, dirty bias to clean bias. One of the things that um, always sort of annoyed me a little bit is when you have these TV hosts and they, they, they have, they're kind of like, a, uh, what is the word for it again? Uh, performative neutrality, right? And they're like, oh, we're, we're neutral with this, but then they're working for Fox news or CNN or something like that. And you know, they're clearly have a bias. Um, so call that out. You know, instead of pretending you're neutral and secretly having a bias, uh, say what your bias is. Say what uh, kind of your presuppositions are, what your philosophy of life is, what kind of um, ideas you're most attracted to. So, if, like for myself, out of all those mimetic tribes, I'm mo- at least the ones that are listed, what I'm most attracted to are the integral theorists right now or the post rationalists. 
I don't necessarily identify with them, but that's where I'm going. Um, so we recommend have some kind of reflection and say what your position actually is. So then we can kind of kind of learn what your perspective is from that. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. I know I know I was much clearer about certain perspectives I had when I was more honest about my my upbringing. I mean, I have a, my my father is a scientist who, who has worked on you know climate science. Uh, I went to an elite university. I went and I worked in the journalism in New York City. So I understand how journalists, you know, how newspapers work from the inside. And I I didn't go deep into that world, but I I worked in that world. And it's fundamentally shaped how I look at certain arguments about the quote-unquote mainstream media, for example, or questions about how science operates. And I, you know, so when people say certain kinds of things, I'm just, no, they're wrong. Well, why do I know they're wrong? Because of where I've come from. Do I think that's the only place to have come from? No, but I'm not going to get outside of some basic ideas about science and how science works and basic ideas about how journalism works, uh, you know, by hearing these kinds of arguments, which seem very simple to me. Um, And it was much clearer once rather than arguing the point on principle to just acknowledge that this was what shaped me. In a way, it just kind of made the whole situation more calm without in any way undermining my commitment to the perspective. So I think that that bias point is a is a is a really uh, uh, a really interesting one. So you you mentioned having to kind of end on a hopeful note. <laughs> I, how how often how often do you, are, do you do you have that existential hopefulness? Is it is it something you kind of work to maintain, or, or does it come to you naturally? You know, lately for whatever reason, I have it a lot. Um, I don't know why. But it's how I look at it. It's sort of this, this irrational hopefulness about the you know, the future, about where we're going, and like you know, I'm bounded by rationality. And when I when I kind of peek through a certain reality tunnel, all I see is like you know, bleak uh, hopelessness. But I combat that just sort of with this irrational hope. Um, and I don't know how that came about, but it's something that I'm running with right now. Well, wonderful. I think we're going to have to end it there. So, uh, P- Peter Lindbergh, thanks so much for, for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thanks for having me. And I just want to mention uh, P- Peter's article with Connor Barnes, Mimetic Tribes and Culture War 2.0 is on uh, is on Medium. It's definitely worth a read. Definitely ch- worth uh, checking out the, um, the M- Mimetic Tribes map and uh, following your own tendrils. And until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>